Welcome to a night of total terror. Welcome to the Undead Wookiee Podcast, Episode 10, Dawn of the Dead. The Undead Wookiee is a fortnightly-ish podcast focusing on horror and sci-fi, but there will be times where we dip into other genres because here at the Undead Wookiee, our nerdiness knows no bounds. I'm extremely excited tonight to be uh, recording this episode. This is Episode 10. Um, I can't believe that we've got to 10 episodes already course tonight we will be looking at george a romero's classic 1978 film dawn of the dead now before i dive into any details or give you the summary or anything else let's enjoy the classic trailer in 1968 george romero brought us night of the living dead it became the classic horror film of its time. Not that room, not that room! Now, George Romero brings us the most intensely shocking motion picture experience for all times. It gets up and kills. The people it kills get up and kill. This situation must be controlled before it's too late. They are multiplying too rapidly. Dawn. Of the dead. Meet me on the roof at nine o'clock. Get out. I don't believe We're it. We're gonna what? get out in the chopper. We've got to survive. Somebody's got to survive. They kill for one reason. They kill for food. They eat their victims. Imagine, if you will, that something has gone terribly wrong. Shoot it, man. Now, accept the fact that there's no escaping the horrible consequences. George Romero brings back the dead. Night of the Living Dead has ended. Dawn of the Dead is here. We must not be lulled by the concept that these are our family members or our friends. They are not. They will not respond to such emotions. Operator dead. Post abandoned. We may never get out of the room. It's everywhere. What the hell is it? Looks like a shopping center. One of those big indoor malls. What are they doing? Why do they come here? Some kind of instinct, memory, what they used to do. This was an important place in their lives. What is it? We've got a war. I'm afraid. We have spawned our own savagery. Soon, it will consume us all. It is a horrible, hauntingly accurate vision of the mindless excesses of a society gone mad. They must be destroyed on sight! When there is no more room in hell, the dead will walk the earth. We are down to the line, folks. We are down to the line. Dawn of the Dead. Oh man, I love that trailer. It is such a good trailer. I love the music. I love the atmosphere. 
it is absolutely superb and it is so quintessentially 1970s. I love it. Now, before we dive into the dark heart of this film and get into those wonderful, gory Tom Savini-esque effects and the deeper meaning behind this film, let's have a little look at the figures and the numbers behind this. Let's look at who's responsible for it. So we've got, of course, we're looking at Dawn of the Dead, 1978, written by George A. Romero and directed by George A. Romero. Um, it was produced uh, with Richard P. Rubinstein, uh, Claudio Argento and Alfredo Cumono. Um, it was written, of course, as I said earlier, by George A. Romero. It stars David Image, uh, Ken Faree, Scott Reisinger, and Galen Ross. Um, now, I probably mispronounced a few of those names there, so you're going to have to forgive me on that one. Um, we've got the music. Now, the music for me is another interesting piece uh, to talk about. You've got the... Uh, the Goblins there with Dario Argento. And then you've got uncredited music by DeWolf Music. Um, the cinematographer on this was Michael Gornick. Um, of course, it was edited by George A. Romero. However, the international version of this film was edited by none other than Dario Argento himself. Um, the production company was the Laurel Group Incorporated. And it was distributed by United Film Distribution Company. Um, it was initially released on September the 1st in 1978 in Italy, and then it was released on April the 20th, 1979 in the United States. Um, the Italian running time is 116 minutes, and the uh, American uh, running time, or the time that we most likely had here in the UK, is 127 minutes. The official budget for this film was $1.5 million. However, um, Romero does uh, and has been quoted on occasion saying that it was much less than that. And it took in total at the box office $55 million. So what we have there is uh, somewhat, of a, um, somewhat of a substantial success. Now, what is this film all about? Well... This is, of course, the sequel to my all-time favourite film, or one of my all-time favourite films, because it goes back and forth between The Night of the Living Dead, 1968, and, of course, The Exorcist, which I feel is pretty much the Citizen Kane of horror movies and probably is a better film than Citizen Kane, but that's a controversial one. Back to the topic at hand. Well, this is, as I just said, is the sequel to Night of the Living Dead. This follows the story of our four survivors looking for a safe place to ride out the expanding zombie apocalypse. You've got Stephen, who, of course, is played by David Image. Now, I keep, I'm keep i probably going to keep saying his second name wrong. For some reason, I can't quite get it, but you're going to have to play. You're going to have to bear with me on that. So you've got Stephen and his uh, pregnant girlfriend, um, who Francine, who's played by Galen Ross. Um, you've then got Ken Faree, and you have got... Uh, with him, the fantastic Scott Reidinger. Uh, I think it is Reidinger. Reidinger? Reidinger. I'll say Reidinger. We're going to go with Reidinger. You're going to have to forgive me on that one. Now, we have Stephen, who is a helicopter pilot for a local TV station. And then you have Francine, his girlfriend, um, who, of course, as I mentioned earlier, is pregnant, also works at the TV station. And both of them are witnessing firsthand how the complete infrastructure 
uh, a law and order is completely breaking down and how this zombie epidemic is now spreading and they can see the chaos of the uh, TV studio where they are still putting on information about rescue centers that are you know have been completely overrun but the you know the the TV station and the manager is more interested in sort of keeping the ratings up um, and they can see that the writing is on the wall um, and then obviously we've got Peter and Roger who are part uh, of a SWAT team who take part in a raid which uh, turns out to be a complete almost a complete disaster um, to relocate people who are hiding out in their apartment complexes and uh, what turns into a, a complete bloodbath where um, individuals who are clearly very very unstable are now completely losing their mind and what we get from that are some of the most fantastic um tom savini effects so seeing that the end is extremely nice Stephen, francine peter and roger team up and they escape or try to escape anyway in Stephen's helicopter so landing their helicopter on the roof of a nearby shopping mall they realize that it contains everything they need and then they set to work on clearing out the undead and making it their own utopia. However, as in all good zombie films, it's not actually the undead that are the problem. But here, it is quite clear, and it's a very, very on-the-nose message, that it is man's own greed that is the biggest threat to them. What are they doing? Why do they come here? Some kind of instinct, memory, what they used to do. This was an important place in their lives. Now, once again, uh, Romero is holding up a mirror um, that is reflecting where America was headed. And he's really, really giving us a heavy dose of nihilism in this film. You know, Knight gave us a far more subtle sense of the anger permeating through America at that time. And I feel that with Dawn, the gloves are very, very firmly off. You know, the political message here is a little bit more on the nose. You know, um, it's it's very clear the zombies are the mindless consumers uh, stumbling along the empty shopping aisles with the sort of the, the Muzak still playing. You know, you get you get the great line that I've just played. You know, so it's, you know where they ask, "What are they doing here?" Um, and the reply comes that, you know, it's some kind of instinct memory of what they used to do. You know, it's an important place to them. And this is, you know, Romero really, really um, laying it on fairly thick. Um, you know, what Romero does so well is he is drawing uh, us as an audience um, to the sort of this idea of the... the ever-growing sort of consumer culture um of the sort of the the late 70s that would then sort of turn in you know turn into the to that consider the greed is good culture of the 1980s and you know even though the zombies you know are dead you know very 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 dead um they are still driven to consume without any thought or reason but what eventually brings about the demise um, and I'm, this is going into a little bit of a spoiler here um, for um, our characters, and not all of them, but, you know, it, look, this film's been out a long time now, so if you haven't seen it, as I say all the time, pause the podcast, 
um, and then come back and pick up where we left off. But you know what? You know it's the what brings about the end uh, for our central character this year is that they need to protect and to hoard what they've already taken. It's an absolutely fan- fascinating take. And again, um, and I think you can only really do it with horror and sci-fi. You can really get your, uh, you can disguise your film very, very cleverly or, you know, not so subtly here. Um, but this is a really, really interesting take on consumer culture. And I mean, obviously coming from South Wales, as you might have been able to tell, um, you know, anybody who's wandered around the new, well, not so new now, but the St. David's Two Shop in Centre in Cardiff and just stood and watched, um, it is very, very easy to make comparisons with Dawn of the Dead. In 1997, George Romero gave a brilliant interview to... um, Total Film Magazine, and in it he was talking about Night of the Living Dead and, of course, Dawn of the Dead. And one of the things he brought up, particularly when he was talking about the um, shopping mall, was this. He said, I mean, my God, here's this cathedral to consumerism, um, and it's also a bomb shelter just in case society crumbles. At this time, everyone uh, was dancing to the Bee Gees. Uh, uh, Consumerism was an all-time high, and the savings and loan hadn't crashed. It was a weird period where everyone was saying, let's just enjoy the prosperity and forget about Vietnam and that the rest, that the rest of the world is turning to shit. Um, I do think that Romero is at his best when he is pissed off. Um, I think he his films, when they have um, a sense of anger, that sort of righteous sort of fury uh, within it, I think he really sort of works much, much better. And this film is a great example of this. Um, there are so many elements that work so well in this. I mean, there are a few things that don't, and we'll come on to that in a little bit. But um, it is a fascinating take on consumerism. And I think one of the bits that sort of really catches me within this film is when the biker gang, Tom Savini's biker gang, um, show up and they sort of they eventually break into the shopping mall and then they start um robbing the bodies of the zombies and they start taking the jewelry off them um i always found that really that, that for some reason not the machetes to the head um not the shotgun blasts to the face um but that was something that really stuck with me and sort of I found that quite a haunting image that they sort of pin this zombie, uh, female zombie down and then sort of taking her, taking her personal possessions. Um, that always stuck with me. That image always stuck with me. Um, it's, um, it is a fascinating part of this film. It's, I mean, don't get me wrong. You can enjoy this film, I think, on a multitude of levels. I think um, one of the things that really, really, really stands out are the incredible effects by Tom Savini. Um, but again, this is this is something that sort of I couldn't quite couldn't quite get my head around because you've got these brilliant, brilliant effects. I mean you've got the helicopter decapitation, you've got the the machete to the skull. I mean even down to how clever it is where Roger um, stabs one of the zombies with the screwdriver in the head 
and the level of detail that Savini put into sort of making the um, a simple screwdriver um, for the head that effect that we all think we take for granted now, but actually it's such a clever piece of uh, cinema effects work. Um, but yet, instead of giving us the sort of the fulci, um, gory, decomposing zombies, we kind of get these sort of bluey, grey type characters um, that I don't think always work. Now, the reason why um, Savini chose the the grey colour for the zombie skin, the, the grey-blue type stuff, was that since Night of the Living Dead was made in 1968 um, and it was made in black and white, the zombie skin tone was not depicted. So he, he did later on turn around and say that um, it was a mistake because many of them ended up looking rather blue when it came to sort of... Uh, they sort of almost look sort of hypothermic, don't they, at, at uh, times? But I think Savini here, um, of course, he would go on to make um, some incredible work. You know, he would do um, Friday the 13th. Um, he would, you know, uh, Maniac. Um, he would, you know, of course, my favourite Savini uh, work is The Burning. I think that's a fantastic uh, film that really showcases his effect and controversially I think it's a slightly better slasher than the original Friday the 13th but hey who am I it's just my humble opinion please feel free to disagree with me um, but Savini um, I think is a big reason why this film is a success I mean he him and his good friend um Forgive me if I get his name wrong. Uh, this, but uh, Tasso, um, his um, his sort of partner in crime on this film. Um, they do so many of the stunt work. They, um, you know, they they create the, you know, they between them they create a lot of effects. I mean, for example, um, one of the windows um, when Roger is um, in the truck, um, and one of the zombies is is, is shot by Roger with his revolver, you know, and the scene leaves this sort of bloody smear on the window. Um, the effect was created by Savini throwing him, him himself on the non-moving truck and spitting a mouthful of blood on the windscreen. This is sort of fairly, you know, fairly guerrilla-style filmmaking. Now, Savini himself is a fascinating character. He, um, you know, he is a former Vietnam um, vet, he was a combat photographer, and one of the things that he he says about and he talks about in a number of interviews with himself is that the way in which that he coped with being in Vietnam and having to photograph uh, some fairly horrendous uh, images is that he was able to sort of say to himself, "Well, look at it as if they are effects. This is a movie. These are movie effects." And I mean, you know, he would go on to create some incredible work, wouldn't he? Um, you know, but Romero here really, really does give us um, some brilliant shots of Savini's fantastic work. I mean, you get all the fake blood effects, you get the latex stuff, um, you've got body fragments, you've got head explosions by shotgun blasts, you've got brains that's getting scrambled, like I said earlier, by screwdrivers, you've got chunks of flesh that are getting torn up i mean in that sort of um 
the scene where the uh, the SWAT team and the National Guard are trying to get into that apartment complex. Um, and they're trying to sort of, they think that people are just there hoarding themselves in there. But what it turns out actually is that they are storing their loved ones uh, when they turn because they haven't got the heart to kill them. And one of them is stumbles out and then sort of uh, finds, uh, I think it's his wife, and then bites her neck when she's hugging and tears that flesh out. Oh, it just, it, it, it is a fantastic, fantastic effect. Um, I mean, you sort of, you know, even when the bikers finally get in there and start, you know, they sort of, besides the, the pie, the custard pie fight in there, I never really got that. I think that's kind of a, um, I can't think it's kind of a distraction from the film. And I don't think it's really needed, but lots of people like it. You know, this is just my humble opinion. Who am I to argue with Romero? But I think, you know, on this occasion, somebody might have turned around and said, come on, uh, George, do we really need the custard pie fight? But I mean, when you look at, um, you know, when the zombies sort of finally turn the tide on the bikers and, you know, they start sort of, um, one of the bikers gets sort of um, pulled off his bike and the sort of, you know, all the zombies sort of pile on him and the blood pressure machine, you know, the blood pressure is sort of, and he's on the blood pressure machine and that's going up uh, as they're chewing on him and they're sort of dragging him away and one of them has ripped his arm off uh, and the blood pressure machine keeps going off. It is, again, touchy humour. This film does have lots and lots of humour in it, um, but it's those Savini effects that sort of cement um, how this film has lasted so long. Um, and of course, um, the censors would sort of really try to come down hard on this film, really, really sort of try to sort of get Romero to make significant cuts to this film. Um, but what Romero did was he, he would go on to release the film unrated because he wanted to avoid the sort of the X rating, which at the time was um, uh, mostly associated with sort of uh, pornographic films. Um, it's a really, really, really bold, um, bold choice uh, for him. I mean, it, it sort of, of course, it was released originally, as I said at the start of the show, in Italy, first of all. Um, and then it was sort of, Eight months later that it reached um, cinemas in America um, and the MPAA um, really, really went to town with it and they wanted um, him to make massive, significant cuts to it or they were going to give it um, give it the, X, the dreaded X rating. Um, people now talk about the R rating um, as being the kiss of death for certain films. Um, but that seems to be swinging back around, particularly now with um, certain films like uh, Logan, um, the last uh, installment of the Wolverine series, going for that hard edge, that hard art, as they say. But they wanted to give Dawn of the Dead originally the X rating, which would more than likely would have killed this film. Um, because, again, it would have meant that it would have been associated um, with sort of pornographic films. What's really interesting, actually, guys, is um, despite the success of Night of the Living Dead, um, Romero uh, was really, really struggling to get um, investors involved. And it's only through um, Dario Argento hearing just simply by word of mouth that... Um, a sequel was being made to Night of the Living Dead, which he was a massive fan of. 
And it's through Argento that they were able to sort of uh, secure additional finance for the film. And what they did was, in order to get that finance, the Romero gave some of the uh, sort of international distribution rights over to Argento, which meant that sort of filming um, could begin. Um, and sort of principal uh, shooting uh, began in 1977 for this film. Um, now, of course, the mall that is used in the film is the Monroeville Mall, and that can be found in Monroeville, Pennsylvania. It's um, what's fascinating was they sort of used the mall. They didn't close it. It was a fully working mall. Um, you know, the shop. It was during the Christmas holidays, so um, they had a number of sort of different sort of constraints that were against them. And um, they would start shooting at 11 o'clock at night and they had to be finished by 7 a.m. when the sort of um, the automatic music would come on, um, which you think, again, which is quite interesting, isn't it? You're making this sort of film about um, consumerism, uncontrolled consumerism, and yet they're filming it in this, this like, you know, Romero said himself, this cathedral to consumerism. And that at a certain point, um, the artistry uh, of filmmaking stopped at 7am so that the doors could open and the mindless consumers could re-enter the shopping mall and wander the aisles mindlessly. Now, that, of course, was The Gonk. <laughs> I, you know, it's one of the pieces of music in the film that um, works for me. I don't know why. I really love it. I think for a long time it was my ringtone. Um, but what is interesting about this film, of course, there are two cuts. You have the uh, Romero cut and then you have the Argento cut. Now, for Romero's um, theatrical version... Lots of the music cues and the selection were chosen from um, a sort of a music, um, like a stock score place. Um, and they took the cues in those type of things. So, um, for example, in the montage scene featuring the um, um, the hunters and the, um, the sort of the National uh, Guard bit, um, the song played there was Because I'm a Man by Pretty Things. And the song was released... Uh, on the group's LP, Electric Banana. Now, the music heard um, uh, in the shopping mall and over the end credit is, of course, the piece that you just heard, which is the gonk. And it's... Um, I'm not really a big muse music person, and my brother-in-law, John, is probably going to kill me, and he'll be able to tell me if he was here. But it's actually... I think it's a polka. I think it's a polka. Um, and again sort of i think it works quite well actually i think it really really does but i think the the fact that um argento when he cut the film um he used um the four-piece band the goblins um and i think it's their sort of very very synth heavy um score that works best within the film um, 
and of course we would sort of you know we would hear those sort of scores being used in a lot of uh, Italian Zora, uh, zombie horror films. Later on, you'd get the the, the great synth scores in uh, Zombie Flesh Eaters, in uh, Zombie Holocaust. You know, in you know, in most of Fulci's work, you would get this great score. Um, so for me, it's interesting that you know Romero had his take on music, and I do think that Argento's tracks and the Goblin tracks are stronger bit but i do love the gonk um i really really do love the gonk um but it's very very interesting actually when you listen to the choices and you know i do think the sort of the goblin soundtrack does have far more menace to it let's have a little listen to some of that now Man, that is really, really, really evocative and sort of does have that sort of wonderful Fabio Frizzy feel to it. Um, I just think that is such a great piece of music and um, really, really makes that film. It makes this film, it just, it's just so, that, that, that beat, that almost heartbeat, it is just, it's, it's always there. It's, you know, it, it feels like the plodding of the undead and the plodding towards the doors and the never-ending horde of the undead that are coming after our characters. It is just, oh man, I love it. I love that piece of music. I mean, one of the other things, obviously, is sort of the post-production uh, story of the film. Um, you know, the film goes through... Um, quite a bit of back and forth, lots of recuts. Um, the, particularly Dario Argento, um, he really, really does sort of, um, for the foreign language release, he really goes to town on the film and sort of, you know, he sort of, um, he makes a number of edits and a number of different choices in the film, but Romero sort of had his final cut for the sort of the English language territory. Um, but obviously we, we spoke a little bit earlier about the sort of... Um, the um the battle with the senses and those type of things but actually it is really interesting and i think it's on the blu-ray actually that you can see the difference between the two films um and i've always found sort of the argento cut probably i lean a little bit more to argento um i don't know why it's, it's something that as i've got older i've started leaning towards him um but obviously the sort of um the uh, running time, Romero's running time, um, I think initially it ran to about 139 minutes um, and then he managed to get it cut down to about 127 minutes, whereas Agento's cut is 116 minutes. Um, and I think sometimes one of the criticisms that I do have with um, Romero's films, but I mean, who am I to um, to criticise? But one of my... One of my sort of my little tiny bugbears with him is sometimes I think he could be a little bit more ruthless in the editing room. I think that there are times where 
there are things left in that you don't that doesn't serve the film any purpose um i think you know at times the pace particularly in the middle of the film i think the pace in the middle of the film really really dips um, and then picks it back up then uh, for that sort of for, for, for a fantastic ending but you've got this brilliant um opening this brilliant brilliant opening um where you've got the chaos of the television studio and you can see that everybody is sort of working hard you know just just it's just chaos people are work you know are pushed to extreme people are, you know you, you've got francine the character sleeping uh, against the wall you've then got this sort of um, they're trying to keep this debate um going on the studio floor about what should be done um you've got some horrific extra acting in there which i <laughs> i would have been i think as the director i probably would have had a little word with one or two of them but you know pair it back a little bit boys um but especially the dude with the frizzy hair and the glasses um yeah i'd be having words with that it's, it's something that always sort of bugs me a little bit about that scene um then you've got that you've got the, you've got the shootout and the great scene in the apartment complex um particularly i love the scene where the hand where they sort of just they, they find this sort of boarded up wall and they take it apart and all the zombie hands come through and it's it's a mad crush and you've got the claustrophobia and you've got the tear gas um you've got the sort of um you've got the cop then you know the the racist cop um who's completely lost his mind and starts you know blasting people with his shotgun um you know you've got his classic lines there of blow all their asses off <laughs> which is a great line but again it's as much as I love the line, there's equally a sort of ham-fistedness about it. And I think sometimes with um, Romero's dialogue, I think it can be really, really ham-fisted. I can hold back some of the characterization as well, you know. It's that sort of, you know, almost sort of, well, how can we make this cop really bad? Well, I know, let's make him a racist cop. Um, and that kind of undoes some of the good work a little bit. Um, you know, like I said, you know, the pace with this can be... Uh, it drops significantly and then it picks it back up in time for the end because I do think there is that big lull in the middle. Now, I know that sort of, you can almost say that, well, really, that's sort of um, a sort of a foreshadowing, a sort of lulling the characters into this false sense of security or the fact that when you finally, you know, you could even look at it from the point of view of once you finally have everything, um, where you no longer need to go out and buy, and you no need to, you you just got everything at hand that you no longer need to consume. Your um, your life can become very boring and very very humdrum. Um, but um, yeah, I think that I think it's sort of in the Romero cut. I think it lingers just a little bit too long there um, in that part of the film. I think they could have moved it on um, a little quicker. I think the um, the remake, the Zack Snyder remake, uh, does that really, really well and keeps the pace of the entire film up um, really, really well. And obviously we'll cover that on the show at some point. Um, but so let's um, let's get into sort of some of the performances then of, um, of the cast because we've got some really, really, really good, strong acting performances here. And I think particularly um, Ken Furry, in this film, um, I think in the same way that uh, Dwayne Jones is the beating heart of Night of the Living Dead, I think once again uh, Romero gives us a very, very strong 
central um, African American lead here. Um, and although the sort of the story sort of focuses a little bit on on um, Stephen and Francine's relationship, and um, I think there's you know there is that element to it, but I think it is Ken Faree, um who is the sort of the the pillar um, for this film, and of course he gets to utter the immortal lines of "When there is no more room in hell, the dead shall walk the earth." You know, and it's, you know, he got his partner in crime then. Roger played uh, with some real gusto by uh, Scott Reininger. Um, but again, I got a few issues with, with his performance because I think there are some moments in it he brings some really, really touching, um, poignant uh, elements to his character. Um Particularly again in the in the apartment complex where you could where the horror of the situation is really sinking in, um, and the scene where you know he is, you know where he's coming to the end after he's been bitten, um, and you've got that you, they show the period of time where he's becoming weaker and weaker and iller and iller as the virus takes hold of him, and then you've got of course the the moment where he passes away, um, and then comes back. And there is a moment when he comes back where he sits up um, and you can sort of see the the last remnants of his humanity are still there. Um, and I think that's done with some absolute, uh, with, with, with real skill. Um, but the bit where they are obviously using the trucks to sort of um, block uh, to block the entrances and sort of to help them sort of fortify the, the shopping mall and things. I think there, his performance gets a little bit sort of OTT and it's all a little bit over the top. It's very, very hammy. Um, and again, I just, you know, there, there are moments where you just think with Romero, I think sometimes he's not the greatest working with actors. Um, I think sometimes he gives them a little bit um, too much free reign where really they need somebody to sort of say, well, no, bring it back, bring it back to us. Um, but again, I, I, I think overall, um, I think Scott uh, Renegade's performance as Roger overall is very, very good. Um, the, you know, the character of, uh, I'm going to butcher his name again, is David Amage with his image. I think I keep getting his name wrong. I'm sorry. Um, his, um, his performance with Stephen, I think he's... He makes the character very, very dislikable. And there are moments where you just want to reach into the screen and beat his face in because his sort of masculine ego um, <laughs> is, you know, is clearly, his male pride is clearly wounded uh, when Francine, uh, you know, shows that she's more than competent to look after herself. Um, but the moment he steps out of the elevator, or the lift, sorry, I should say, in the UK, um, where he steps out of the lift and he's been bitten and he's, his body is all contorted and twisted um, and he's just been, you know, he's clearly reanimated. It's absolutely fantastic. It is a brilliant piece of physical acting. Um, and I think that, and for me, it's iconic. It really is iconic, the, the sort of the twisted neck, the way that his leg is all twisted around. It's it's brilliant and it creates such um, such striking images that stay with us. Um, 
Um, but as I say, Ken Furry is the pillar around this. I think um, Galen Ross as Francine, I think she gives a fantastic performance. She gives a very, very well rounded performance. Um, you know, and she's, you know, she does a little bit of the damsel in distress moments, but she's clearly very capable and competent and is able to look after herself. Um, and I think her performance within this is, is, is really strong. And it, it's a really, it's a fantastic contrast, actually, um, to um, Barbara in Night of the Living Dead, whereas, you know, I felt that the biggest weakness you know, and it is my big, and, it, and only my humble opinion that the biggest weakness of um, uh, Night of the Living Dead is Barbara's performance. I think that I, I talked about it on episode one that, I, that at times it's just, it's frustrating. But I think Galen Ross here as Francine is absolutely superb. And you can see um, the dilemma that her character is going through, particularly about keeping, you know, keeping the child and bringing the child into this world. Um, you know, a zombie apocalypse and all those. Te- there's there's a lot going on there, and she gives a really really good performance, um, which of course leads us to a controversial moment within this film, is the long talked about alternative ending, where um, Peter and Francine were going to kill themselves. Um, Peter was going to end it all uh, by shooting himself. And Fran was going to kill herself. Now, I'm kind of... She was going to kill herself by sticking her head into the helicopter blades. Um, which, in some ways, would have been a real sort of... Would have been a massively downer of an ending. But I, I quite like a downer of an ending. But sticking your head in the helicopter blades. Um, and then the ending credits would just, you know... Would run over... Um, the shot of the engine, you know, of, of, the, of the blood and the gore whipping around. I don't know if that would have worked. Maybe it could have worked. I'm not quite sure. Um, but um, I don't know how I feel about that. It would have been interesting to see if they'd actually shot it. Now, I know that they shot elements to that bit. Um, and sort of that would have sort of, you know, that, that would have been interesting to see on a sort of director's cut version, you know, now, now that we could sort of, have it on Blu-ray and or DVD, and then have a look at that. But sort of much of the lead into the suit into the two of the um, into the two suicide does remain in the film. You've got um, there's a shot where Francine leans out of the helicopter and seeing the zombies approaching, um, and then you've got sort of the bit where they've obviously the bikers have completely trashed them all. The zombies are everywhere. Um, you've got Stevens' character who's sort of trace memory of what's gone on in the last couple of months leads the zombies up to their secret hiding place and you've got Peter sat at the table and he's got a gun to himself and he's ready to sort of um to blow his brains out. Now the um the bit that follows I found a little bit difficult where Peter decides no he's not gonna kill himself and he sort of suddenly starts using some busts out the kung fu moves really um i don't know if that worked but you know it, it was an interesting moment and then we've got the hero music swelling um but i think overall i think the actual ending that we get um works quite well because you know that there's, they haven't got a lot of fuel left where are they going to go will they make it um i think that's a really interesting bit uh, for me, I, and I, I quite like an ambiguous ending. I think I prefer an ambiguous ending 
um, as opposed to um, an outright downer where everybody um, everybody dies. Um, so it's um, the the alternate ending is you know is sort of much talked about, and Romero sort of um, he, he's never really be sort of, he's never sort of committed to it. Um, he sort of talks about that um, it was completely scrapped before um, before filming had even started. Um, you know, so but what was very interesting was they do use um, some of the makeup and the things that they they set up for uh, for that alternative ending. So, for example, when the SWAT when you get the Timu raid, obviously at the beginning you get that great shotgun blast and the head exploding. Um, that was originally the, the sort of the mannequin head for that was originally going to be used for Franz suicide. So um, good on Tom Savini. You know, waste not, want not. Well done there. Um, and you know the other thing in terms of sort of performances uh, within there, you get some great zombie performances. Um, I mean, particularly the guy who gets on the escalator um, going the wrong way. I think that's a, that's probably one of my favourite zombie performances ever. Um, it's 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 superb. Um, it is absolutely brilliant. Um, yeah, and it's always really worth watching um, the background zombies and seeing them. You know, I I think that's great. You know, looking out for the overacting zombie. Um, when you look at sort of um, you know the scene between Roger and Peter in the trucks. Um, where they are, um, you know, kid winding each joke, joking about. Uh, you got Peter and Roger sort of joking about um, Roger's height. Um, that scene is completely improvised by the actors, um, and I think that's a fantastic scene. I love. I really do like that bit. Um, this is the other. <laughs> this is the other bit that kind of um, that I love about Romero's films. This sort of um, this bit where the, you've got the Pittsburgh community coming out. Um, <laughs> But also, it, it, it's also quite scary because we've got the outdoor scene where you've got the hunters um, and you've got the emergency crews and you've got the soldiers and they're all lined up and they're all the volunteers and they're all taking turns shooting zombies. Um, but actually, you've got these are local people who arrived on set with their own guns. Um, it's quite nice. Um, sort of the, the, the local National Guard unit um, sort of all the territorial army in the UK um, they sort of got themselves all kitted up um, and they all showed up and filmed for free I think that's absolutely fantastic um, a bit scary mind you when they do bring it you know you, you sort of your extras bring their own heavy artillery though <laughs> um, yeah only, uh, only in America. Um, another uh, piece of trivia, actually, that I really quite like is that the voice um, of in the shopping mall saying "attention all shoppers" is actually George A. Romero's wife. And I can honestly say that I, you know, a very, very tenuous link is the scene where the biker Sledge, um, who's played by, and I can remember his name now, is. Uh, Tasso N. Stravakis, um, who is sort of uh, Tom Savini's right-hand man for a number of things in this and his sort of partner in crime and all the stunt work that they did, um, is that when he's getting um, 
dragged and pulled apart by the zombies. Um, the intestines are real. They are cow intestines and uh, sort of uh, pig liver and bits of real bits of cow. Um, and Tom Savini said that he, you know, he lived near a slaughterhouse, and that's how he got the got the idea to do the effect. Now, having um, played the part of a zombie uh, in a friend of mine's uh, short uh, student film, I suppose you know who you are. I won't mention any names. But I spent a good, the best part of six and a half hours covered in um, in animal entrails gathered from the local butchers. So you can imagine how wonderful I smelt after that. Um, so I have a little bit of a, a little bit of affinity there for uh, for Tasso. Now I'm g- <laughs> oh god! I can just remember opening the black bin bag that we chose to store all the animal bits in, um, and the maggots being in there. Happy days. Fun times. Fun times. So I'm going to start uh, wrapping things up now because uh, 40 plus minutes of me wrapping on at you is enough for anybody. Um, for me, um, Dawn of the Dead is a classic and it is a must own. Um, it is a key part, I think, in horror cinema. Um, it's Furthers the trilogy, the original Romero trilogy. Um, it's um, a far more visceral experience um, at this point, anyway. I mean, uh, for me, I think Day of the Dead takes it to the next, the, the next level, um, particularly in terms of the zombie makeup and those type of things. But what Dawn gives us is. Um, the sort of um, a much larger view of the zombie apocalypse, the the growth of the zombie apocalypse. It's no longer a, a local incident. It's now clearly becoming a worldwide epidemic. Um, and for me, that's the fascinating part. I love that it's the next stage within the sort of survival horror genre where you, you have a much bigger um, place um, where our survivors have to get, uh, you know, they're able to sort of hide themselves away and try to sort of survive in the sort of the now iconic shopping mall um, that's been replicated by countless other films, uh, books, comic books. Um, you know, of course, it got its own remake, which um, I think is a great remake. It's one of the better of the remakes out there. Um, but is this a film without its flaws? Um, I don't think it is. I think in some ways that, um, again, Romero's social commentary, although um, is very, very poignant, um, is a strength for the film. I think equally it is a, um, it can, it's a bit, of, a bit of an Achilles heel for the film. I mean, um, David Flint, in his book, uh, Zombie Holocaust, um, he makes the following point. Um, he says that, and it is this social commentary that is the biggest problem in the film. For all the praise heaped upon Romero for his insight, you have to wonder why the suggestion that people in shopping malls are just like zombies seem to be so revelatory. And for that matter, why is it so readily accepted? 
Certainly, if you believe that people wander through shopping centres with empty brains and dead eyes, you might sympathise with the idea. A popular one these days with anti-globalisation, anti-consumerist groups. But it is an elitist concept. And unless Romero doesn't buy food, clothes, electrical goods or anything sold in such places, a bit of a hypocritical one too. Um, I think that's a little bit harsh on George Romero, but um, it is a very, very interesting point. Um, that they, you know, and again, it ties back to my original notion that of this anti-consumerism, uh, like you said, talk, you know, with the way in which he talks about the cathedral to consumerism, is a little bit of a point that is that, that that's far too on the nose. My other problem is that you know I think what Romero is kind of kind of saying that you know society can you know and human beings can only consume. Um, and therefore, sort of, you know, when the chips are down, we'll because we, we we'll only we're only able to consume and not produce. Um, that society will fall. I think that's a little bit of a, a simplistic view of things. However, you know, let's not delve too much into sort of Marxist theory. There, I think what we have to remember is this is a great, great entry into the zombie uh, pantheon of uh, film. Um, I love it. I think it's a superb film. It is a must-own. It is a must-own. You have to have this in your collection. There is some great DVD releases and the Blu-ray, um, the current Blu-ray release of it, I've got it somewhere on my shelf, um, is a great transfer of it. Um, I love this film. Um, I'm Where I gave Night of the Living Dead a 10, I think. Yeah, I give it a 10. Um, I'm going to have to give this one... Um, a 9.5, and that's me being really, really picky. This was a 9.5 out of 10 for me. Um, but it's a must-own. Um, so just before I go, um, I just want to say a big shout-out to a couple of people. Um, as always, I am incredibly humbled by people's tweets, uh, comments, um, the fact that people are now subscribing to the YouTube channel. Um, thank you. Uh, please... Please, uh, like I said, at the end of the show, subscribe. Um, feel free to leave comments. Let me know what you think. Um, be gentle with me. <laughs> I'm a sensitive soul at heart. Um, but I want to say a big shout out to my man, uh, Blake at Spivey Point. Um, as always, guys, if you're looking for somebody to follow on Twitter, get yourself over there. Always interesting. Um, always, always makes me smile. Um if you're looking for a podcast to follow or a couple of podcasts to follow, uh, always get yourselves over to uh, the horror movie podcast where you can hear Jay of the Dead, uh, Wolfman Josh, and Dave Dr. Shock Becker. Um, of course, you can follow them on Twitter, at Horror Movie Podcast. You can follow um, Dr. Shock at his DVD infatuation blog and on Twitter under the same name. And you can follow Josh uh, Legary, Wolfman Josh at Icarus Arts. Guys, they are, you know, incredibly interesting people, incredibly intelligent. Uh, guys, get yourselves over there and uh, follow them. Also, um, if you're looking for another fun, um, interesting take on the horror genre, get yourselves over to Cadavercast. I'm not going to, uh, guys, I can't big up that show anymore. It's fantastic. Um, if they're a great father and son duo 
and there's a the King Kong episode they've just released is absolutely superb. Um, so get yourselves over there and um, and follow them. Also, big shout out to my gothy gal pals, uh, CL Raven. Um, at the moment, they are currently terrorizing the people of Venice. Um, but again, follow them on Twitter at CL Raven. You can find them at uh, their Raven Retreats uh, website. And you can find them on Instagram. Guys, they're well worth following. Also, you can find their books on uh, Amazon. Um, like I said, Soul Asylum. I've just finished reading that. I'm going to be diving into one of their next books, one of their, uh, their latest release. Um, but guys, get yourselves over there. Follow them. Um, again, if you're looking for another blog to have a read of and follow, you can see Jay uh, Lewis over at... Um, vhs revival absolutely superb writer very very clever man far cleverer than i uh but get yourselves over there and uh, take a look at their stuff so once again guys thank you for your time thank you for listening thank you for subscribing thank you for following on twitter and it's all that's left for me to say now in the immortal words of count Dracula, good night up there whatever you are <laughs>